Welcome to the Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis LA and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Hello, could I please speak with Natalie Etoke? This is she. Hello, Natalie. This is Paul, Paul Holdengraber, calling you from the Quarantine Tapes. I'm so delighted that you could be part of this program, which is co-presented by Dublab and Onassis LA. Natalie, tell me, where do I find you and how have you been living this last, what is now one year of this quarantine? You will find me in Harlem, New York. And what have you been up to during this delirious period? been doing a lot of teaching on Zoom, you know, it's a new way of uh, teaching these days. Yes. And just trying to stay connected with my family across the globe and uh, still trying to keep a positive outlook on life in the midst of our current circumstances. And I cannot complain. How do you keep a, a positive outlook in these times? A lot of meditation, but also really looking at the ways in which you can live with disaster. Mm. And I always refer back to one of my favorite writers and thinker, James Baldwin, who wrote an amazing essay titled The Uses of the Blues. And he talks about the blues as being a way of living with disasters and the facts of life and the ability to face your reality, knowing that you cannot escape it, but you have to deal with it. And in many ways, I think the whole world has to do that at this point. You know, there are ways in which disasters seems to be uh, part of the daily routine of people who are from the global south, per se, when you think about it historically. But now we're all on the same boat. And I think there's something we can learn about, you know, living with disaster and finding a certain kind of joy, which is not about fulfilling your desire, but actually being able to deal with this duty that we call life. You know, how do you stay alive today? How do you keep love and happiness around when it seems like we're surrounded with death? All of those questions. And I think when you're able to do that, you can have joy because it's no longer about your circumstances, but what we all have on the inside that connects us to each other. And the fact that, you know, sadly, disasters and tragedies remind all of us that we need to be more caring, more loving, and more compassionate. So that's what I mean. So basically, how do you, how do you deal with calamity? Exactly. How do you deal with calamity? And for some reason, also frustration, you know, (laughs) what do you, let's not forget that. What do you do with life when you quote unquote, don't get what you want Mm. or it doesn't look like what you expect it to be? Life is still happening. And I think it's, it's interesting 
because you have to, you know, when I talk about joy, I'm actually describing a dissident state of mind in constant revolt against madness and death. That's what I mean. It's not like, oh, I'm happy because at the end of the day, maybe your circumstances will not make you happy. But what about that dissident state of mind in constant revolt against madness and death? So joy here is a kind of rebellious vitality. I love that. Yeah. A rebellious vitality. Go deeper. I think a rebellious vitality of those who, when they fall, are certain to get back up again and again and again, because that's what life is about. It's not the falling part. It's the fact that you have to get back up. And it brings a certain sense of joy, <laughs> you know, a dissident state of mind. It brings to mind uh, the wonderful line at the end of the Myths of Sisyphus of Camus, mm-hmm. where, where yeah. he says, Il faut mm-hmm. imaginer Sisyphe heureux. Heureux. Ma- you know, you, you, you read my mind. Well, I like, I, I, I'm, glad I, I'm glad I have that ability from a distance. But it's yeah. that one must imagine Sisyphus happy. So tell, happy and, t- tell me how that resonates. Go ahead. It resonates because when people think about that myth, it's this idea of, you know, you have this rock and you push the rock all the way up to the hill. But then the rock goes back down again. Again and, you and have again to start and over again. Over and over and over again. So in this microwave society where we're supposed to be happy right away and you know get what you want, how you want it, no matter when, no matter how, how can Sisyphus be happy when it seems like that rock is supposed to stay up there so that he can relax and rest and maybe have a glass of champagne? I don't know. <laughs> but uh, the happiness is in that rock and the strength he has to keep on pushing. You know, I love that song by the impression, keep on pushing. I can't stop. I can't stop now. Just go up a little higher some way, somehow. I have my strength and I have to keep on pushing. It's the myth of Sisyphus, but the black version by Curtis Mayfield, you know. (laughs) So, yeah, that's the idea. Because right now, really, Paul, what other choices do we have? Honestly, we have to keep on pushing. It uh, might not be pleasant, you it, know, it might be depressing, but who, it's, that's, that's the only option we have. Who said it would be? And in a way, this pandemic has brought into focus many of the things that were dormant but were right mm-hmm. there. And, you know, this pursuit of happiness always reminds me of the anthropologist Marshall Salins, who said, a people who conceive life to be the pursuit of happiness must be chronically unhappy. Oh, yes. And Bowen said that there's something very sinister about people who are trying to go through life without suffering. <laughs> it's not saying that we should look yeah. for it, but it's talking about what type of mindset we create and what type of society we create where we're trying to escape suffering. Even this idea of death, you know, I feel like in the Western world, there are ways in which it wasn't always the case. Death is not part of the public space anymore. But in other hand, in the global south, it's, it happens every day, but it's in your face. So you have this idea of living with death. And I think what is really interesting at this point is how I believe that misfortune is a surprise for those who believe that they are safe. You know, people who have been living in and through situations that should not exist develop a relationship to the self. And to the world by which, you know, for better or worse, the fullness of life asserts itself 
in moments of danger and distress. Natalie, um, you, you're an associate professor of African and Francophone studies at CUNY. And Africana. Mm-hmm. Tell me the difference. Well, Africana studies is basically the study of, of diasporic and continental Africans through some type of transdisciplinary approach. So you can be trained in sociology, history, or literature, but when you have an Africana approach, it means that what is at the center of your scholarship is understanding the life of people of African descent and the consequences of 1492 all the way down to now in terms of shaping the so-called black subject, the question of how to be human in the humanized world. How do you see yourself as a human being when historically you had to grow through slavery, colonization? What is the meaning of culture when in so many ways your pre-colonial culture is still present, but then you cannot deny the influence of the Western culture, which is now also your culture. This idea of colonization, so dear to Edouard Glissant. Right. And uh, what does it mean to be, you know, a modern black subject? This encounter with the West, you know, um, Franz Fanon talks about a colonial, no, an existential deviation. Yes, it was an existential deviation, but we'll see here. And how do we exist? And what are the consequences of imperialism in our lives? But not in a pessimistic manner, you know. It's just a certain kind of framework to look at the contribution of people of African descent to humanity. But when you just say African studies, it's just the continent of Africa. Right, Africana right. Africana is, is, is continental Africa plus the diaspora. Thank you. Thank you. I've learned a lot, and thank you for that clarification a mistake I won't make again because it's, as you say, uh, it it enlarges uh, the framework considerably. And what is so interesting in hearing you talk here, Natalie, is the references, the people with whom you are in dialogue. Of course, Baldwin, you mentioned, and we may get back to him, but you mentioned also Edouard Glissant, who mattered to me greatly, and Aimé Césaire, who you are really in dialogue with for so long. And I want to read the very beginning of an essay that I discovered of yours. I read first in, in French, Au bout du petit matin, j'ai la force de regarder demain, which is a quotation of César, translated at the end of daybreak, the strength to see tomorrow. And here's the very beginning, and I think it's a very beautiful essay, you say, I encountered Aimé Césaire in my last year of high school. My neurons were not yet alert enough to understand the poet. Notebook of a return to the native land. An impossible enigma. The words accumulated on the white page, the images, the metaphors, the descriptions that were the source of my first literary upheaval. The more I read, the less I understood. Talk to me about that encounter and that upheaval. Yeah, at the time I was in high school. Um, Where? In Cameroon. And um, we had to take uh, the baccalaureate exam, you know, a high school diploma. And my in the French slash francophone schooling system, 
we get specialized very early. Yes. So baccalaureate was philosophy letter Allemand. <laughs> philosophy so, letters German. And, and German, yeah. And of course, <laughs> English as a second language, German as a third. And, um, and you had a list of books uh, in French or literature. I mean, you didn't call it French. Literature that you have to work on in Terminal. And Amy Césaire was among the uh, writers who could have potentially been on the list for a dissertation or commentaire composé. So, and I just couldn't wrap my head around it. Why? I've never been exposed to that kind of poetry before. And eventually, as I studied modern literature in France, I realized that yeah, it was surrealism. It was heavily influenced by that school of um, writing. But at the time, to tell you the truth, Paul, all I wanted to do was just pass that exam, okay? And we know pain. <laughs> and Cesare was just like, see, I have to, this in my uh, literature exam, I'm not sure I will do well because I just don't understand what this man is talking about. Of course, the professor did his best, but I think we lacked the historical and cultural context. You know, it wasn't a novel. There are ways in which, you know, we read novels, uh, French novels, and I understood everything about those novels, or novels by people like Richard Wright, and I read people like Corneille and Moliere, and, you know, they, they made more sense to me because I had a certain type of context. Césaire was just, you know, the, the way he uses language is very unique, and the metaphors and the poetry. So it was just way above my head at the time. And it was a catastrophe because, you know, no matter how many times I read it, I just couldn't say much about it. And then? And then eventually, like everybody else, I grew up. France to... Like some people. Okay. I moved back to France uh, to go to college. And, um, and I started to learn more about the French Caribbean, the history. Uh, and then I think I was equipped to understand the text and also to tell you the truth, leaving a country where I was part of the majority population to settle in France where I became a minority. So this whole idea of race slash racism and being the other, I never was the other. So there are ways in which your lived experience also gives you certain tools to understand what was at stake in um, Césaire's poetry. You know, the encounter with the West, but the West is no longer an idea mm. or something you read in books. It's how you live and how you perceive in a society and how you create this connection, you know. So then Césaire became very, very important to me. And there's something about his writing that, it, that brings a sense of healing and peace and understanding because there are ways in which you can look at history with anger and resentment and the desire for revenge because of the pain inflicted on black bodies and the black psyche. But when you read Césaire, he says that to dehumanize the other is to dehumanize yourself. Then you realize that we all live on this earth and we need to find a way to live together and share it. And there's an appeal to the human. No matter how you look at me, no matter how you mistreat me, in many ways you're still my brother and my sister. It's very hard, but 
you all I have, and I'm also all you got. So let's make this work. <laughs> yeah. That's what I learned from Césaire. Not a small lesson to learn how, in a, in, in a sense, despite the hatred, to go beyond. And we, we were talking earlier a little bit, a tiny bit. You evoked Baldwin. And as you were yes. saying about Césaire, he, he, he doesn't want vengeance. He doesn't want hatred. And there, there are two quotations I want to, to read to you and have you re react. One is by Baldwin, where Baldwin says, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain. And then Primo Levi says, I have deliberately assumed the calm and sober language of the witness, not the lamenting tones of the victim or the irate voice of someone who seeks revenge. Yeah, I mean, I truly believe that the arm inflicted on the other is the reflection of the self. Mm. So Baldwin is right. But we could also say this, for the space of a moment, as long as eternity, if people who are clinging to hate were willing to lose themselves, I believe that the stray multitude would rediscover the road to freedom that leads to a creation of um, a humanity that is one and indivisible. But this is the thing, nobody can do this work on their behalf. Because freedom, really, and that's something I should also connect to Césaire and all the wonderful thinkers you just mentioned, freedom is interrelational. You know, I always ask this question to my students in the context of history, and even now, how can I be free when I enslave you? How can you be free when you make me a slave? How can I be free when I colonize you? How can you be free when I am colonized? Some questions for the students to think about and for us to think about with you. And you have this new book coming out from Siegel Books, uh, a publisher in India, possibly one of the most extraordinary publishers run by uh, Naveen Kishore, who we also had on the quarantine tapes, called Shades of Black. And in that book, I think those very questions come into play. And I'm wondering, Natalie, if you would give us uh, the opportunity to, to hear something from the book, maybe, maybe you could choose a passage to read from. Sure. A short passage. Okay. Centuries of oppression and domination by white people have forged a colossal and narcissistic white ego that has clothed the black person in a bereaved humanity. People of sub-Saharan descent who are born and raised in the West, experience an exteriority that they have not sought. The history attached to the color of their skin predates their existence. If freedom is the sum of acts and operations by which man emerges as human, and race is a straitjacket that reduces the human to nothing, black individuals are confronted with a paradoxical choice. To exist as black or and as a human being. In imperialist democracy, black identity remains the depository of a diminished humanity. James Baldwin was fully aware of this when he wrote a letter to his nephew that reads like a handbook for black resilience in racist America. 
In it, he lovingly instructs the young man without denying a frightening truth. I quote, we cannot be free until they are free. God bless you, James, and Godspeed, end of quote. The freedom of blacks is changed, chained to that of whites. As demoralizing as this observation may seem, it is not so much a matter of pessimism or resignation, but simply a statement of the psychological dimension of political oppression. You are really in dialogue um, with with Baldwin, and I'm, you know, I'm wondering after hearing you you read this, we're in the middle of the trial of George Floyd. Yes, and. How does this play out in your mind? Oh, Lord, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> Unfortunately, George Floyd, for probably some cosmic reasons, created this moment of reckoning with race, quote-unquote. But if we try to be honest, this is an old story. Right. You know, we can go back to Rodney King. We can go back to Emmett Till. I mean, there's so much... So I don't want to sound pessimistic, but unfortunately, I think that this will happen again unless transformative radical change occurs. And as for now, I don't really see any meaningful policies with regard to, I don't know, police training, our police officer could be held accountable, but also I just don't want to make this about the police. Right. Because police officers are citizens and they belong to this society. I think sometimes it's very easy to just focus on them. But as a society, you know, they are the products of this society. So how do we question the society in which we live? That's what I'm interested in. I think... I call those the tropes of American racism. There are ways in which we tend to focus on a certain group or certain individuals instead of looking at the structures. And I can tell you that this is also happening, you know, in corporate America with the diversity training, the bias training. I'm not saying that they're not very important, but what I notice is that you pitting your workers against each other, you know, instead of looking at the structure of your company, maybe in terms of salaries or in terms of uh, promotion, you know. But there are ways in which we always make it about a specific individual or a group of people instead of really thinking in political terms. You know, how do we change this structure? What type of education do we give, you know? So, yes, I don't know. I am not too hopeful. I think it's just going to be one trial and then you will have another one and another one, and another one, because that's, it seems like that's the uh, track record when it comes down to those tragic events, sadly. I'm reminded of, uh, of another sentence of Baldwin, which really um, devastating. He says, people cry much easier than they can change. Yes, and he also said that people do not always act on one, based on what they know, because, you know, I mean... Uh, I've been in high institutions of higher learning for a very long time. Yes. People want to believe that um, racism comes out of a certain kind of ignorance. And I disagree with that. 
unless you're talking about ignorance the way Jean-Paul Sartre understood it, meaning escaping your responsibility, you know, or living your life in bad faith. If that's your existentialist understanding of it being ignorant, I will agree. But if you are telling me that it's just that people don't know about history or they don't know black people, I just disagree. Black people have been living in America for more than 400 years. If you're able to go to the moon, you should know about black people. So, <laughs> so um, <laughs> I'm just, uh, and I think it's a very comfortable excuse that America has also created this narrative about ignorance, right. meaning you don't have access to information or you don't know those people. What do you mean you don't know them? You know, I just don't understand that part. But I also know it's true because I had students telling me, you know, well, my white students, when I used to teach at Connecticut College, they used to tell me that they've never been exposed to, let's say, James Baldwin or to certain material. So I'm aware of the ways in which America can create cocoons or whiteopia, you know, spaces where people just have a certain way of understanding what America is and who they are. And they have no idea about how black people live. So I, I understand that. But I think it's a choice. It's not an act of God or a fact or something that you just that just happens to you. It is manufactured. <laughs> you know? The idea of of culture and of knowing in some way keeping us from acting is such an old mm -hmm. idea. You know, I'm, I'm I think of George Steiner's extraordinary essay in Bluebeard's Castle. Mm-hmm such a cultured country as germany exactly don't 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 even don't don't go there because that's the other thing with culture right and we know what happened there <laughs> so um but i also understand actually because you know i think there's so much at stake and i tell this to my students sometimes that if i were white would i be willing to just risk it all and be in a state of constant discomfort for the sake of equality. Because there are ways in which life is comfortable for some people. And this idea of reckoning with racism and inequality is not really about you being a good person or a bad person. It's about how much are you willing to risk and how much are you willing to lose. And it's not even just about whiteness. I always use this example all the time, even amongst black people. You have the issue of class, okay? I could be considered middle class or upper middle class. What am I willing to lose or risk? Or am, am I using race and racism to advance myself in the social ladder? <laughs> you know? So these are questions that we need to ask ourselves and be honest about it. Because at the end of the day, to create a society that is egalitarian, you know, something got to give. Somebody has to lose something. Somebody has to be, has to feel uncomfortable. And I think it also boils down to that. Even in terms of imagination, how do we imagine this country? You know, the way we tell the history of this country, you know, Thanksgiving and all those fights about Columbus Day, like who was Christopher Columbus? And what does it mean to actually just tell the true story instead of creating a myth, you know, what does that say about us? And I think there's just certain narratives that people are very uncomfortable with. You know, 
when and how do we talk about the genocide of Native, Native Americans and the fact that America as a country and as a state and as a nation and as a democracy initially is grounded on settler colonialism. <laughs> we can say that and still try to create something that is better and inclusive and that acknowledges everyone in this country, particularly people who have been historically oppressed. But it seems very hard to do that because when you do that, some people will tell you that, you, why do you hate America so much? <laughs> you know? So it's, uh, there's a lot at stake. There's a lot to gain. Mm-hmm. I, I, I agree. And I think we're living in a different time. So I think the days are gone where you could just tell people lies and they accept the lies. So we need to find a way to speak the truth and to be, or to look for the truth and to be ready to accept the truth, even if it hurts us, even if it makes us uncomfortable, because we've been lying to ourselves for too long. And it's not just an American problem. You know, I also work on France and French culture. They're having the same issue there, even in something in the UK, <laughs> you know, so we need to find a way to create a world where everybody is included and we are ready to deal with the truth. Let's get rid of the myth. That's why I'm not a big fan of, you know, this idea of creating a myth that will bring us together. I said, no, we need to deal with the truth, <laughs> no matter how painful it is, and create something new. We cannot build the future based on lies. It's not going to work. And it breeds resentment and anger and desire for revenge. Natalie, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. I'm looking forward to the day when we meet in person, and I'm looking forward to the day when Siegel Books brings out Shades of Black. I love the title, and I am so happy that we had this moment together, strange time we're living through. Thank you so very much, Paul. Thank you for the opportunity to in conversation with you. I really appreciate it. Merci beaucoup. Merci beaucoup à vous. À bientôt. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye-bye. To support this show and Dublab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com slash support. 